One of the most admirable feats in a human life is longevity. We, we look at people that live long lives and we just marvel at, at how long they could live. My maternal grandmother, Grandmother Coffee, lived 103 years. We admire longevity in marriage. My Heinze grandparents were married for 72 years until death did they part. We, we admire long careers. My dad has served in the same business that he started in the same market since 1968. That's 47 years, and he still goes today. My dad and I might admire a baseball player together. At least I think we do. I might need to call him this afternoon to make sure. But he and I admire Nolan Ryan, who pitched for 27 years. It's a record for a pitcher. Nobody's played that long. And if you look at Nolan Ryan's career and just broke that down a little bit, it's amazing what he accomplished early on in his career and how he was still accomplishing that late in his career. And if you looked at the change that he experienced in baseball over the seasons that he played, it was, it was amazing. There, there are today 11 teams in the 30-team Major League Baseball that didn't exist when his career started. The DH came in and playoffs got expanded and all kinds of changes one thing that's amazing about Nolan Ryan, if you know this about him, in 1973, he was 26 years old, and he threw a fastball 100.7 miles per hour, the first man to ever break 100 miles an hour on a thrown ball, 60 feet and 6 inches. What's amazing is, late in his career, he pitched until he was 44 in 1993. He was still hitting mid to high 90s on occasion with his fastball. In 1973, Nolan Ryan threw the first of his two no-hitters. He threw actually two no-hitters, his first two no-hitters, in 1973 as a 26-year-old. He threw his last no-hitter in 1991 as a 44-year-old man. And all told, he threw seven no-hitters. And it's amazing that a man that age, after that many years, was able to still accomplish that kind of feat. And people marvel. At him, In fact, that might be what he's best known for is a 27-year career, plus some no-hitters and some strikeouts. Well, I want you to know this morning that Daniel is, I dare say, the Nolan Ryan of the Old Testament. But, but he did things far bigger and far more impactful in the kingdom of God than Nolan Ryan did. But Daniel had a career of longevity that is just absolutely amazing. Let's just walk through it real quick. Let's look at the back of Daniel's baseball card. At the age of 15, Daniel becomes an exile in Babylon. He's a Jew living in Judah and Jerusalem and worshiping, raised up in the ways of the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar raids Jerusalem. God hands Jerusalem over to Babylon. And at 15, he is an exile. He's a prisoner. And that's where he's going to spend the rest of his life. At age 16, he is put into the test and he will not... Uh, actually, it's still at age 15. He will not eat the king's food. He will not be defiled by it. He asks to eat vegetables. And so at an early age of 15, he is resolved not to defile himself before the Lord. Then the next year at age 16, Nebuchadnezzar, as we know, has this wild dream of this statue. And Daniel at 16 throws a no-hitter comes in and interprets this dream and not only interprets it, but tells the king what his dream was and then what that dream means. If you fast forward to age 45, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. This time it's a wild one about him turning into a beast and Daniel interprets that one. Then you fast forward to the age of 80 and Daniel's got a new king, right? The king now is Belshazzar, and at 80, there's this hand that writes on the wall, and Daniel interprets that writing, gives the meaning of that writing, and foretells exactly what's going to transpire in the Babylonian Empire. And now this morning, Daniel's at least 85, probably 87, 88, maybe pushing 90, and he is put to the test again. And we pick up in, in Daniel chapter 6, starting at verse 1, and we have a new king in place. It's Darius. Darius has just taken over from Belshazzar because they stormed ba Babylon last week, as we saw, and overtook it. And the Medes and the Persians are now reigning, just as God foretold in the dream. And, and Daniel is going to show us today 
what it means to have a career of longevity. Daniel is, is now in his perhaps 74th or 75th year of his career, his 87th, 88th, or 90th year of his life. And we learn from him that kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but the man of God remains steadfast. And over the course of a long career, Daniel is ever faithful all the time to his God. In Daniel chapter 6, pick up with me and let's read the first five verses here. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one. To whom these satraps, satraps, should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So the scene starts with an employment situation. Darius is pleased to set some men over areas of responsibility in the Babylonian kingdom. And first he's got 120 satraps. I want you to think of these as regional vice presidents over specific regions or territories, territory vice presidents. And over those 120 satraps, he raises up and has three regional vice presidents. And one of these three is so excellent that he wants to elevate him to what we would call the president of that division of Babylon. And that is Daniel. And there is jealousy that is sparked up amongst the other leaders, the 120 and the other two uh, high, high leaders. There's jealousy that raises up because they don't like that this exile from Jerusalem is elevated over them. What's the deal? Why, why is this employment situation the center of what's going on? Well, we'll get to that in a moment, but we need to understand that probably in the Babylonian world, these leaders are raised up because it says there that the king might suffer no loss. So there's a concern maybe that taxes are collected, but they're not making their way to Babylon. So they need men of integrity to oversee the governing of the Babylonian precincts. And we see here that Daniel in verse 3 was distinguished above all the others. That's exactly what it says. Verse 3, then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps. He was distinguished. And we need to, before we get to this lion's den, and let me just put pause on, lion's den is next Sunday. We need to build up. There's a, an important message today in verses 1 through 11 that get us ready for the lion's den next week. We want to do this justice. Okay? So we need to understand that there is a distinguishing mark in Daniel's life that gets him to that lion's den. And we're going to understand today the distinguishing mark. It's not his miracles merely, although it might be a contributing factor. It is the fact that he was known for his work ethic and his integrity. He was distinguished in the way he conducted his business. I think it would be safe to say that he was not a complainer. He didn't grumble. He didn't gossip in the break room. He was a man devoted to his work, and he worked with excellence. And it was recognized by his pagan boss, Darius. He never said, that's not in my job description. He never said, if you're going to ask me to do that, you're going to have to pay me a little extra. He was a devoted, loyal man of work. And his work gave a testimony to his God, as we will see. Daniel was all of this, and he was this with three different, ultimately pagan bosses who were next to impossible to admire. Think about it. Daniel worked for Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most evil pagan men in the history of the world. 
Belshazzar was a drunken leader who lost his kingdom in a drunken festival. And now we've got Darius, the Mede, not a respectable man, totally pagan through and through. And yet Daniel was found over and over again for 74 years to be faithful to work for men that he really didn't admire. You see, Daniel understood that his work was not for those men. We'll get to that in a moment. His work was for the God who made him and called him and enabled him to be encaptured and to be in exile in Babylon. And he said, this is where the Lord's got me. I'm going to give my all for the Lord, even in a pagan world. What made Daniel this way? How did he get here? The text says, right in the middle of verse 3, you need to circle this. Because an excellent spirit was in him. When you go to work, I want you to ask yourself this question. Will I reflect in the way I conduct my business today that there's an excellent spirit within me? That, that's a question worth asking when you go to the work tomorrow. Is there an excellent spirit that's within me and will that be evident to the people that I interact with? Notice that the text does not say that his dad raised him right and taught him how to work. Although he probably did. And that's important. But it's not attributable to some dad that raised him to be a hard worker. It's, it's not because he was just made that way and that was his constitution and he just, he just got things done. It's, it's not the way that the Bible projects, projects him. It is because there's an excellent spirit in him. And let me ask you, who is this spirit? Yes, this is the spirit of the living God who interprets dreams, makes dreams known, who who stands with three who are in a fiery furnace. It's that God whose spirit dwells within Daniel. And Daniel, with this spirit, influenced the world that he worked in. This spirit of the living God influenced his performance and his performance preached to his co-workers and to his bosses, Yahweh is supreme. And he is worthy of all my attention and all my devotion. And so Daniel is unique in that he is known for his work ethic. And his work ethic is based upon his relationship with the Lord. Secondly, Daniel is unique in that he is known by all of these men for his faith. It's not just that he's a hard worker. He is known for his faith. Yes, he has an excellent spirit that's within him, but his co-workers are jealous of this fact, and they're seeking ways to topple him so that he doesn't get the promotion that they all want, and they do not want an exiled Jew reigning over them. So they're seeking ways to destroy his reputation, and they can't go to anything that he's done in work, and they have to go to his faith to set the trap for him. I want you to know, Daniel, Daniel did not live out a vague Christianity in his workplace. He didn't just lay low and, and he wasn't just polite and moral. No, it was known that there was an excellent spirit that lived within him. He didn't just have a positive attitude. He wasn't the first guy in and the last guy out each day. He didn't work more hours than anybody else. No, there was an excellent spirit and, and Daniel is a, is a precursor. He lives out what Paul calls us to be about in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Paul's writing to employees, and he says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Earthly masters, pagan masters. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, no, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You work like that. And Daniel did. Paul goes on, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Oh, that's Daniel. Daniel lived this out long before this was inspired. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Is that what you look like at work? I even have to look like that at work. I even have to check myself in the office. This is what we must be like every day that we walk into the place that God has given us to work. So, I'm, I'm going to tell you that Daniel did something that is not common today. 
Daniel lived a totally integrated life. He did not segregate out his spiritual life and his church life and his faith over here. And then over here is his work life. And over here is his recreation life. No, Daniel lived a fully integrated life. And wherever he went and whatever he was called to do, it was an act of worship of Jesus Christ, God the Father, before Jesus Christ had come. There was a time that I worked in a company. And and this company had a, a president and a team of management executives. And I was in that team. I was responsible for human resources, marketing, and information technology. And this company was founded on biblical principles. And this company made the statement that they wanted to be a light unto the world. And they wanted to shine the gospel into the industry that they worked in. And through acquisitions and new hires, we added people to this management team. And this company had a mission statement that had the gospel in it. This company had core value statements that were laced with Scripture, with Scripture references on the website linking all the core values of this company to biblical principles. And as head of human resources and marketing and IT, I saw that as a ministry platform. We recruited in the name of Jesus Christ customers and employees. We compensated in the name of Jesus Christ. We wanted to honor our employees with generous wages. We, we, we practiced sound business principles. We conducted ourselves biblically from an ethical perspective. And do you know that as we brought new executives onto this management team, executives who clearly and boldly claimed to be Christian, we had a meeting one day where these men said, we need to take all this Christianity off of our website and out of our marketing brochures and out of our employee handbook. We, we, we've got to get this Christian stuff out of here. Now, we, we believe that, but we believe that God belongs at church, not in the workplace. So, so we're going to run candidates off. We're going to run clientele off. We're, we're going to scare suppliers away because this stuff's weird in, in, to them. And, and so let's just... Put that off on the side, and we'll worship God on Sundays, but on Monday through Saturday, we'll be at work. Thank you very much. Literally, they said that. That is so common in the world that we live in. We're fully Christian on Sunday, and we're pagan on Monday. That cannot be how we are numbered as a people. Christ goes with us to work. Christ goes with us to play. Christ goes with us to shopping. Everywhere we go, fully integrated, Christ goes with us. That's what Daniel did. <clears throat> That's exactly where Daniel is. And so to be an authentic Christian, our lives must be authentically integrated through and through. Please, please walk with your faith at work tomorrow like Daniel. Picking up in verse 5. We see that there's a law, a law of the Medes and the Persians that is established. Let's understand what's going on here. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Okay, so we know this man's a follower of God. Let's trip him up in that relationship with God. That's where we'll get him. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or men for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Yeah, they could find no wrong against Daniel, so they conspired to create a trap. And they, they said, in connection with the law of his God, that's where we'll get him. There's nothing bad they can say about his work ethic, his attendance, his demeanor. We'll get him in his relationship with his God. And so they plot 
to entrap him in the way that he handles God's word. They plot to entrap him in his high holding of God's written law, his scriptures, and his adherence to those. And they say that's where we can find a weakness and we can get him. And so in, so, in short, they use his faithfulness to God and his word to entrap him and to slander him and to bring him down to a lion's den. And look at the trap that they establish. There's an ordinance that they ask Darius to establish. It's an irrevocable law. They, they say, let's make it an irrevocable law like the law of the Medes and the Persians. What that's about is that there was a time when the Medes and the Persians established laws and their rule was any law written can never be revoked. Imagine if we had that today. It'd be a scary concept in our country, right? Anytime there's a law, it can never be revoked. And the purpose was they didn't want to write frivolous laws. And so they said, this law is in place forever. So if you're going to write it, you need to know what you're signing. So Darius signs this law, and it forbids people from praying to any other god or man for 30 days. Only can you pray to or through Darius to your God of choice. These people are pagans. They worship multiple gods. They're polytheists. Daniel is what's called a monotheist, a one God. So you can pray to all your gods. You can even pray to your one God, Daniel, but you've got to do it through Darius. Well, no, 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 no. We know Daniel can't do that. The rest of the country, the rest of the empire gladly complies with this. Probably the rest of the Jewish exiles comply with this because we're only told of Daniel's steadfast resolve. And the law says that if you do not comply with this, you will be thrown into the lion's den and devoured once and for all. I want to ask you a question. What would happen to you if somehow there was an edict passed that forebode you from praying for 30 days. Would that impact your life? Or could you survive that quite fine and shut it down for 30 days and flip the switch again 31 days later and get back to praying? I, I, I want to tell you a sad truth, I think. And this comes from self-inspection. <laughs> I, I think prayer is so undervalued in the Christian life, that we could have such a, such a decree written into law, and some of us in moments in our lives might say, that's really not a big deal. I think I can hold my breath for 30 days. I say hold my breath because I've said this before from this pulpit. This is food. We are to eat often and drink often from this. This is our sustenance. This is where we get nourishment. So this is our food. And I've also said that prayer is our oxygen. When we pray, we breathe to God. And I've said before that when we don't pray, we are suffocating ourselves. When we don't read, we are starving ourselves. So I'm going to ask you again, could you go 30 days of holding your spiritual breath and not praying? And I dare say for some of us, and I've had seasons in my life where I'd say, I think I might be able to pull that off. You know, we rant and rave about no prayer in school. And yet we don't pray in our own personal lives in such a way that it would reflect our angst against a government that forbids prayer in school. So we, we, need, to, we need to understand that prayer is precious. And these satraps and these governors know this about Daniel. And so they want to rob him of breathing to his God. They want to suffocate him. And Daniel's got a choice to make. Daniel's got a serious choice to make. Darius' response to this delegation who calls him to make this law is one of drunken self-glory. He has absorbed this thought. That, wow, everything would come through me. I am the center of everyone's religion. How great would that be? Darius is, at this moment, a puppet 
to these 120 satraps and their delegates that they send to him. He is their puppet and they dupe him into writing a law that is horrible. And you'll see in a moment why it is so bad. So he blindly signs this law and it's irrevocable and trouble is coming even for Darius in the lion's den scenario. Let's look at a third thing. We've got to look at Daniel's response. We've got to look at Daniel's response to this edict. And and I want to put Daniel up as our visual aid. And I want you to see that this is a man whose spine is lined with a rod of steel. He's not limp in any way. He's not bent over in any way. He's not going to flex in any way. He is stiff as steel in his resolve to breathe and to pray to his God. In verse 10 is probably, for me, the biggest verse in Daniel chapter 6. Yes, we're all wanting to get to the lion's den, and we love the story of the lion's den, but I think verse 10 of Daniel 6 is one of the biggest passages in all of Scripture. Listen to it. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And when he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before the Lord as he had done previously. One verse, profound truth, that we all must imitate. We all must mimic this verse. Daniel makes no provision for compromise. He has resolved, remember, at age 15, he resolved himself not to be defiled. It would be a defiling thing to shut down his prayer life to the living God for 30 days. It would be a most heinous and defiling thing to comply with this pagan command and pray even to God through a man. And he's resolved to not compromise in any way, shape, or form. He lives out his complete and absolute allegiance to God, come what may. Come what may. He's steady. He's controlled. And and this verse shows us that he is very, very intentional in his response. His Christianity is intentional. Now, not formulaic. Don't hear me. He's not going through rituals. But he is intentional in his worship of the living God. And I want to lift out of this verse, this verse 10, five truths that we must see and understand And apply to our lives this morning. And this is where we'll go to wrap up. There are five truths about Daniel's response. That show that he is steady and resolved. And it's faith as usual. No matter what comes down. Number one. I want you to note the timing of Daniel's actions. The timing. In verse 10 it says this. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed. That is a short phrase that is a key to understanding this whole chapter. When he knew that the document had been signed and the law was in place, now he acts. And it's intentional. He knew it. And when he knew it, he said, what am I going to do? And he had a moment of truth. He had, remember youth from Wednesday night, he had a narrow gate. And he had a wide gate. We talked about that, right? He had to make a choice of which gate he's going to go through. And he chose the narrow gate. I hope you haven't forgot our our Wednesday night together. Hope you haven't. He chose the narrow gate. And the narrow gate is, it's business as usual. It's faith as usual for me. I'm going to be intentional. And I'm going to go and do what I know to be normal in my relationship with God. So when he knew the document had been signed is a key, key phrase. It's clear. He didn't unknowingly go pray and get caught and go, whoops, oh yeah. (laughs) Okay? This wasn't mere habit. This was intention. He's fully aware that his actions have severe consequences 
from an earthly perspective. But he also knows that his lack of faithful steadfastness has severe consequences for all of eternity. And he weighs the eternal higher than the temporal. He's knowingly going to defy man's command to forsake God and to worship man for a month. This is a place where Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7, where God says we are to be in submission to governing authorities. This is a time where that passage does not apply because God's law is higher than man's law. And man can never write a law that we should follow that denies God and we be right in that. There is a higher law. There is a higher lawgiver and we are always in submission to him first. And so Daniel here is just and righteous for defying man's decree because he does not fear man. He fears God. This is just like Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5. They've gone around preaching the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. The high priest and the scribes and all, they arrest them and hold them and say this. They say in Acts 5.27, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name of Jesus, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. We told you not to do this, Peter. It's like Darius' decree told Daniel not to pray to God, and Peter says this, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness for sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. We will not silence our tongues. We will proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ crucified and risen come what may lion's den stones crosses upside down bring it on we will not defile ourselves before our god so his timing is key that's the first truth that we have to lock in on it was when he knew it was set bang he's intentional faith as usual i will honor my god Through prayer. Next thing. The location. Note the location. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed. He went to his house. Where he had windows in his upper chamber. Open towards Jerusalem. He didn't go in hiding somewhere to pray. And you say well he went into his house. Well be careful. Because he's got an upper chamber. You've seen pictures of this. The houses in that day, two-story deal, first story you lived in, second story, flat roof. There's a little room on top, right, with some openings. Probably had some lattice over the windows because they didn't make glass back then. And that was where they went. That's their upper room that they went to pray. And so Daniel goes to his private prayer closet that's kind of semi-public because you can see through the lattice and it's on top of the house. He didn't bury himself down into the depths of his house. He didn't run out to some woods or hide behind a wall somewhere. He went to his normal place of worship. Normal, intentional. He said, it's faith as usual. I will pray to my God there. And so he's in his house. He's in his upper room. His windows are open. He's not hiding himself. He's not also broadcasting his faith. He's going where he normally went. This is normal. Going to my house. Not praying and hiding. Not praying under my breath as I walk the streets for 30 days and then I'll pray open again. No. Business as usual, Lord. So that's his location. Third, I want you to look at his action. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed. This was his exercise of worship the normal course of his worship and i'm not calling us today to have three times a day that we get on our knees and pray although i highly recommend it i'm not but but there's there's things that we need to have that are pretty structured in our life we really do we need to have a set apart time where we are in the word we need a set apart time when we 
pray. We, we need these moments where we hit pause on life and we huddle up with our Savior. We need these. And Daniel had it. And he had it three times a day in a location that was common for him. And I dare say Daniel couldn't wait to get to that place during the course of his days. Notice that he doesn't pray 30 times a day now. Oh no, I've got to, I've got to pray more. I've got to pray. No, he's steady. My relationship with God is vibrant and it will not be interrupted and it will not be dictated by any circumstance in life. I will pray my three times a day to my God. And it's not going to be frantic wringing of hands 30 times repeating over and over again. You can hear Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount there, right? No, steady, steady, three times a day, same location after he knew that it was written into law. He also didn't quit praying because maybe it hadn't been doing any good. You know, how many of us, when we get something like that, we just shut down and say, well, my prayers must have not been answered. I'm not going to pray anymore. No, he was resolved and steady and it was faith as usual. Here's the fourth observation. I want you to look at the content of his prayers. (laughs) It's crazy. He prayed in verse 10. He prayed and gave thanks before God. His God. He prayed and he gave thanks. Persecution's coming. It's been written into the law code. And it's the law of the Medes and the Persians. It cannot be reversed. Lion's den awaits those that defy. And I'm going to go in my upper room. And people can see through my lattice work. But I'm going anyway. And when I get up there, I'm going to pray to God. Thanks. Thanks for what? What could he possibly be thanking God for? Philippians 4, 5 through 7. Paul writes this to the Philippian church that's enduring hard times. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, church. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Daniel says, Father, I've got some requests and I'm coming to you with thanksgiving. Thanks for what? Thanks for what? I I, I looked at this all week and I'm going, what's he thanking him for? This is not thankfulness territory. Well, I think he's thankful, number one, for continued life, if he's going to be delivered through this, or death. I think Daniel is so resolved that he'll thank God if he's given breath for another day, or he'll thank God if he's devoured by lions. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I get to live some more as an exile in this world I don't belong in called Babylon, serving this pagan king named Darius and whoever's going to come after him, praise be the Lord. I'll be able to serve him all the more. Or if I'm going to die, praise God, because I am delivered. (laughs) I'm no longer an exile and I will be where I belong for all of eternity. That's how you go to God in circumstances like this with thanksgiving. Secondly, in thanksgiving, I think he's thankful for promises that he knows will come true. He knows the Old Testament that had been written to that point, the law, the first five books. He knows of the promised Messiah that was first introduced in Genesis 3.15. And all the promises through the Levitical law and all. He knows all of that. And so he's thankful to God that, God, you're a God who's made promises. And no matter what my circumstances are, you're going to say yes to all of them. There'll never be a no to a promise that you've made me. And so I wanted to start, Lord, by thanking you for being faithful to your promises, however that might look. I think that's what he's praying when he prays with thanksgiving to God. Now, it also says in verse 11 that these came by agreement and they found Daniel making petition and plea 
before God. So it wasn't all just thank you. It was also petition and plea. Lord, I need you to act. This is beyond me. Do not forsake me. Carry me through this. But if not, I bet he said, I bet he said, but if not, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. But if not, thank you. I think it's all intertwined. Thankfulness and petition and plea. And we should pray like this. It should be all intertwined together. And so we looked at the timing. We've looked at the location. We've looked at the action. He prayed steadily three times a day. We've looked at the content of his prayer. And here's the last one. Look at the discipline. Look at the discipline of this Christian man. What does it say at the end of verse 10? As he had done previously. He's disciplined. Title of this sermon. The disciplines, the spiritual disciplines of a godly man. That's what this is. He was disciplined, not formulaic, not ritualistic, not traditional. No, he was disciplined. He ate regularly. He breathed regularly. And after he had known it had been written into the law, he did as he had done before. He's not shaken. He doesn't give up. He doesn't run frantic. This is who Daniel was yesterday. This is who Daniel is today. And this is who Daniel will be tomorrow. Come lion's dens or anything else. He's a steady man of God. Disciplined with a steel. A spine of steel. I want you to know something about this discipline of Daniel's because I've looked at his history from chapter 1 to chapter 6. His discipline was his source of strength. He, he drew strength from being disciplined and resolved not to defile himself. And he took great efforts to not be defiled throughout his life. And now he's in his late 80s and he's drawing strength from this life of discipline that he's lived all along. And it's paying dividends. But I want you to know this also. His discipline is bringing about persecution. So it's a source of strength on one side and it's a source of persecution on the other side, isn't it? And, and that's true for us. If we live a disciplined life, chasing hard and fast after Jesus Christ, that's going to build us up strong, but that's going to bring trouble because the pagan world of Babylon hates it. So we need to know that we need this strength because the persecution's coming. And the more strength we get, the more persecution's coming. And then on the other side of that persecution, that strength's going to pay dividends to carry us through it. It's the Christian life in this world as we wait for Jesus Christ to return. So how are you at living this disciplined life? Like I said, next week we're going to get to the lion's den. We're going to unpack that. But today there's a call here from Daniel's life to be a Christian who lives a disciplined life. Who's intentional in your relationship with the Lord. And who can't be swung from one extreme to another by circumstances in life. But steady, resolved, faith as usual, no matter what comes our way. That's where we need to be and that's Daniel's lesson for us. So highlight verse 10 in your Bible. Box that thing in. And, and come back to that often. That is our blueprint for how to live in a world as we wait for Jesus to come again. Here's how I want to conclude. Because I have yet to fully preach a Christian sermon until I get to Jesus Christ and a cross and an empty tomb. And, and I want you to know that in Luke 24, 27, Jesus encounters these two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they're down in the dumps because their Savior's dead and we're in trouble and they've not yet seen and believed in the resurrection. And once Jesus opens their eyes, it says that he then began to tell them everything from Moses and the prophets that pertained to him. Well, I want to do that this morning with Daniel. And I think Daniel's a prophet who wrote long ago and his life long ago foreshadowed Jesus Christ 2000, uh, at that point 5,000 years later. Five, 
500? 500 years later. Yeah, 500. And here's how it works. Daniel points us to the one who would come after him. Just like Moses points us to Jesus, David points us to Jesus, and on and on. Daniel is a type of Christ. He's a pointer, a forerunner of the one who is the ultimate. And I want you to just watch this. I want you to look at at the timing issue. Okay? Well, Jesus walks on this earth, and it says throughout John, like a drumbeat seven times, he knew his hour had not yet come. They picked up stones to stone him, but his hour had not yet come. Jesus said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. So there's a timing element in Jesus' ministry and life on earth, right? And then we read in John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour was at hand, sounds just like Daniel, when he knew it was written in the law, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He knew the time when he was going to walk up to the most extreme persecution any human ever endured. So Jesus had an understanding of timing just like Daniel did. How about the location? You know, Daniel faced Jerusalem. Why did he face Jerusalem, by the way? He faced Jerusalem because that's where he came from, and that's where he met with God in the temple. And that's where he knew the prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah, and that one day that temple worship was going to be restored. And so longingly, he faced Jerusalem, and he prayed thanksgiving and plea and petition, Lord, draw us back to that. In Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus, too, turned to Jerusalem. As he was facing his lion's den. And he went for it. Day in and day out. He set his face towards not a lion's den. But a hill. A hill called Calvary. Where he was going to die for the sins of the world. It's just like Daniel. He understood the timing. And he understood the location. Number three. Action. What did Jesus do when he was coming up to his betrayal. And and trial and murder. He prayed. He prayed. In John twelve twenty seven, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. I bet Daniel prayed that. Don't have it in Scripture, but I bet he did because he made plea and petition along with thanksgiving. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's what he prayed. Daniel prayed three times a day facing Jerusalem. Jesus went to the Jerusalem and he prayed this. This is the hour that I've come for, Father. Glorify your name. And the text says that the voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And I'm going to tell you, I think God said that to Daniel. I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. I'm going to deliver you from lions. You see the parallels between Daniel and Jesus? How about this one? The content of Jesus' prayer. The the content of of, uh, Daniel's was thanksgiving, plea, and supplication, or petition. And Jesus in John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Wow. That's Jesus' prayer in the garden. Daniel prayed in his upper room. In fact, fifth, the discipline of Jesus. I want to go back to that John 13, 1. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus was disciplined. He loved you and me to the end of his life 
that ended on that cross, that went into the grave but came back to life again on the third day, he was disciplined and he stayed the course all the way through the persecution that God had ordained for him long ago. It was a definite plan that God had set. And Jesus knew it, and He knew the hour to come. He even knew the one that would betray Him, and He chose Him to be amongst the twelve. Why? Because He knew you, He knew I, were going to need a remedy to our sin against the God who made us. He knew we needed this, and so He set His face like flint to go get it for us. And all the way, he was ever disciplined, day in and day out, in spite of all of his circumstances. All of this was, yes, for Daniel, who would get it after life. And all of this was for you and me, who get it in this life. We get to look back and see the reality of Jesus, understanding the time, the location, the actions, and the contents of his prayers are observed by us. And we see that Jesus was disciplined, and his discipline was born out of absolute love for you and me. Absolute love. Do you believe in this Jesus? Daniel's telling us, look at Jesus. I'm doing some things, these are faint He's going to do the real deal. What he did is far more extreme than anything I've done. That's what Daniel would say to us today if we could talk to him. Do you believe in this Jesus? Because he has been that intentional in securing your salvation and your reconciliation with God Almighty himself. If you need to understand more about that gospel picture, I'm your guy. Please come talk to me. This morning, this afternoon, this next week. You must understand this gospel. And I urge you to believe it with all your heart and to live it out for your sake and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these first 11 verses of Daniel 6 that prepare us for an amazing story next Sunday. Father, I pray that verse 10 would not evaporate from our minds and that it would actually permeate and penetrate down into our hearts and, and that it would change us. Father, I pray that you would make us as a result of this message this morning, first of all, Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, and then secondly, disciplined, faithful, steadfast followers of him, no matter what comes our way. Would you do that, Father, this morning and to the rest of our lives with just this one little simple sermon? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.